0: Mark chapter 6, starting from the second half of verse 6. And he went out among the villagers teaching. And he caught the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over their unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, uh, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of this, and they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and he said to him, and said to them, uh, "Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while." for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away to a boat, uh, to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples said to him, came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 Nari worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to the heaven. And said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and divided the fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat, and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, where he while he dismissed the crowd. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of God.
1: Father in heaven, uh, we need your help now. Because for many of us, uh, this story, particularly the last story of your son, Uh, feeding a multitude and walking on water. Those are familiar stories. But we pray that with your help and the help of your spirit, we would see uh, these verses freshly, that we would see Jesus properly through them and that you would help us to respond. Father, I pray for myself. Help me to speak clearly and faithfully from this passage as I ought. And we pray that you'll help us to hear your word And respond with faith and repentance. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, So far in Mark, we have seen some pretty stark reactions to Jesus. We've seen the crowds of people flocking to Jesus to be healed, to listen to his teaching. We've seen people marvel at his power and the disciples in awe of Jesus. We've also seen people reject Jesus. The Pharisees rejecting him not because of a lack of evidence, but in the face of overwhelming evidence. Overwhelming evidence to the goodness and the majesty and the beauty and the power and the authority of Jesus. It's not that they don't know enough or have not seen enough, but they just do not want to follow what he says and who he is. Outright rejection. Today, though, Mark is going to tell us about a third group of people. Now, this group of people sees all that Jesus has done, hears all that he has taught, smiles and nods approvingly, but they don't do anything with it. They are the fence sitters, people who have heard, who have liked what they hear, but they have not responded. How is that possible? I mean, given all that Jesus has done so far, it would seem amazing that there would be this third group of people. But what Mark shows us today is that this is enti- that it is entirely unsurprising that this group of people exists. And as we might see as well, some of those people might be in this very room today. Our first uh, of the two stories, our first two story, sorry, uh, you'll notice some relatively uh, something relatively odd how they're kind of sitting next to each other Uh, in verses 6 to 13 uh, jesus sends off his apostles on a short-term mission trip in verses 14 to 29 we read of herod and the murder of john the baptist what are these two stories doing there side by side Uh, to work out why these two stories are next to each other you should notice what we read in verse 30 so you get your bibles there have a quick glance at verse 30 the apostles returned to jesus and told him all that they had done and taught So the story of Herod and the murder of John the Baptist is sandwiched between the sending and the return of the apostles. It's a sandwich. The next question is, what sort of sandwich is this? Now, in the world of sandwiches, there are delicious ones, like a steak sandwich, and then there are plain ones that you try to avoid when you see them at the bar, like a salad sandwich. Who in the world, in their right mind, puts salad between two pieces of bread? I don't know. Well, the sandwich that Mark gives us isn't an overly appetizing one. It's a repentance sandwich. You can see that in the message that the apostles are sent out to preach in verse 12. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Their message is the same as Jesus' message that he opened up the gospel with. In chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In the Herod story, we we also have John the Baptist calling on Herod to repent, and we will see how Herod and his wife Herodias responded to that news. So we have a repentance sandwich. Let's focus in then on verses 6 to 13. Uh, in these short verses, we're told of a short-term missions trip that Jesus sends his apostles on. In pairs, they head off into the surrounding villages near his hometown. Now, as we look at verse 7, uh, these seven verses, we can uh, see a few important things. First, we see the immense authority that the apostles are given. Mark has already established that Jesus has immense authority over sickness and death and disease. And on a number of occasions, we have seen Jesus have clear power and authority over demons and the spirits. Jesus appears that, uh, appears, Jesus appears and the demons are terrified. Now in verse 7, we read that the apostles are given authority over unclean spirits. You could say with great power comes great responsibility. Second, this missions trip is going to be short, real short. Uh, back in 2007, my wife, Steph, and I, we went on a short-term missions trip to Sapporo, Japan. We were there for 10 days. That's a really short trip. But we packed all sorts of gear, especially because it was super cold in winter, big jackets, lots of thick socks, underwear, my camera, my laptop, my Bible. All right, look at the inventory that Jesus gives to his disciples in verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. This is practically nothing, nothing but the clothes already on their backs and maybe a walking stick, that's it. There's not even a missions organization or a team to meet up with each, uh, with each of these pairs in the villages. They are to go trusting God, utterly dependent on God to provide. They are to go to each village, preach, and see if they get welcomed in with some hospitality. And if the village welcomes them, then it's a sign that the message has been well received. And if they don't get a warm welcome, then they're to do this slightly strange thing at the end of verse 11. Shake uh, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. It's a sign of judgment on the village, a sign that in rejecting God's message... God was going to hold them accountable one day. So what does this short-term mission highlight for us today? Now, here's a tip. When we're trying to work out the meaning of a text, we need to first ask what this meant back then and there, and then ask what is similar for us today. I say this because I have heard missionaries use this passage as guidance for how to go about missionary work. Uh, One missionary who shared at a very large mission conference, she said that she and her team would often go into a village praying that God would send them someone to say hello and welcome them into their homes. And if it didn't happen, then they would move on to the next village. Now, with all due respect, that is not how we are meant to read this passage. There are a few reasons why I think this passage tells us more about what the apostles did then it tells us how we should do missions. First, notice the choice of language that Mark uses. He doesn't refer to them as disciples, but see in verse 7, he calls them the 12. And then in verse 30, he refers to them as the apostles. Now, the only other time that the 12 and the apostles are referred to as such and occurring together happens back in chapter 3, verse 14. And there, it's clearly referring to just these guys. I'm not an apostle. And when I look around this room, I notice that most people here are not apostles either. So the particular things we read about their mission are, for their, are not instructions for us to follow today. It's particular instructions for them. The message, however, hasn't changed. Read through the rest of the New Testament, and the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is still there. To repent. Very simply means to turn away from your sin, and to turn to God in faith that He forgives your sin, and to turn to God as your new King, so that He His desires rule your life. Now, repentance is not a once-off act. If we trust Jesus, we will spend the whole of our lives repenting. Here's how J.I. Packer puts it: Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as your knowledge of grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. The more you know yourself, the more you know your sin, the more you know God, the bigger your repentance becomes and you will spend your whole life doing it. Now that is a Difficult message to share with people. It is not popular. We're telling people to give up things that they love more than God, and it will be costly because repentance is costly. We're going to tell people that they have to give up the status they get from good marks. They are going to have to let go of their career goals and ambitions, they are going to have to let go of their desire for a comfortable middle class life. They're going to have to turn away from the images they lust over on the screens at night. We're going to have to tell them that pursuing these things in life, even the good things, is a pathway to hell. And that is not popular. And it will cost them to give these things up. And it may cost you to tell them that message but also think about what is received. You don't just give up, you receive. Abundant, eternal blessings in Jesus. We're asking them to see how infinitely better Jesus is, because Jesus himself is infinitely good, infinitely beautiful, infinitely magnificent in comparison the gospel is good news because it's the good news that even as rebels against God, we can be forgiven. And our message to the world needs to not shy away from the hard news of the gospel that repentance is costly, but that it's also worth it. Remember in the parable of the soils that this sort of preaching will have no impact on some, little impact on others, and in some cases it will have big positive impact. Now, As we turn to verses 14 to 29, we see how the preaching of repentance produces a negative response. Instead of softening the heart of the hearer, it actually hardens their hearts even more. And that hardening comes out in action. We get introduced to an earthly king, King Herod. Now, this Herod is different to the Herod at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, you know the one that, uh, who met the three wise men who ordered the killing of all baby boys two years and under in Bethlehem. Uh, that was Herod the Great. Here, this Herod here in Mark chapter 6 is Herod Antipas. Uh, there's actually four Herods in the Bible. Good luck with that. Uh, there are a few things that we learn about this Herod from verses 14 to 20. First in verse 14, Herod come, has come to learn about Jesus. We're not exactly sure how, but most likely news of Jesus' miracles has reached Herod's ears. Now notice the word heard in verse 14. Right after the apostles have gone out to preach repentance. Maybe Herod has also heard this preaching. Uh, Second in verses 14 to 16, we find out that Herod has no idea how to respond to Jesus and is probably feeling haunted from ordering the death of John the Baptist. Looking in at verse 14 and 15. In answer to the question, who is Jesus, the answers range from a resurrected John the Baptist, Elijah the prophet, or just another prophet. Now when you think about that, that's just a bit weird. If I asked you who is Donald Trump, I'm guessing nobody here would say, oh, he's George Washington resurrected, or actually, no, he's Barack Obama. That's a bit weird. Now, we'll see the same answers given in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter responds and repeats what we've heard here. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. You see, just because you have an opinion about who Jesus is, doesn't make you right and doesn't mean your opinion is valid friends if you're here today and you're not a christian can i ask you who do you say that jesus is who is jesus to you and more importantly what do you base that opinion on where are you getting your information to inform your opinion because if it's not the gospels and if it's not the bible then it's probably going to be wrong. Now come back to Mark chapter 6, verse 16, and we see that Herod concludes he thinks this miracle worker in the desert is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then notice verse 17 begins with the word for. Verses 17 to 29 are like a big flashback scene, helping us to understand why John the Baptist is dead and helping us understand why it seems that Herod is afraid now that John the Baptist might be back from the dead. So the word for at the beginning of verse 17 helps us to see the reason why John is dead. And it's because of Herod's wife, Herodias. Don't you love when couples have the same name? Herod and Herodias? Stephen and Steph? Uh, uh, uh. We find out that Herod had John arrested because of Herodias. Why? Uh, Look at verse 18. We find out it's because John was preaching repentance to Herod. Read with me verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, that is another way of saying that Herod was in an adulterous marriage with his wife. He, Herodias was divorced from his brother Philip. Now, long story short, it was an invalid divorce in God's eyes, and Herod was being told by John to repent of this. This is not right. You need to turn away from it. Herodias did not like this one bit, and wanted John dead. that so Herod wasn't going to be swayed so easily. Right, two reasons are given. First in verse 20, we read that Herod knew John was a righteous and holy man, not, not a good idea to kill God's messengers. Right, I've, seen the, I've read the Old Testament. I've seen this play out. It's not a good idea. But then we read something very surprising at the end of verse 20. When he heard him, when, when Herod heard John the Baptist preach. He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. That's really weird. Herod liked to hear John preach, even though what John said didn't sit well with him. He was a listener, but not a doer. How does that even happen? A story is told of skeptic David Hume going to the, hear the preaching of the great evangelist George Whitfield. Hume's friends began to mock him because Hume did not believe these things, the things that Whitfield was preaching. So they asked him, why do you go hear Whitfield preach if you do not believe the things he preaches? Hume's response was simple, because he believes it. Hume liked Whitfield's preaching, even though he didn't like what was preached. Herod liked John's preaching, even though he didn't like what was preached. Now in this we see a picture of a man truly sitting on the fence. He refuses to give in to his wife's demands because he likes John too much. But he refuses to give in to John's preaching because he likes his wife too much. Now this isn't a case of analysis paralysis. You ever get that? When you're in the store, you're standing in front of all the options and there are just way too many options you just don't know what to do. He's not doing that. He's not stuck on what to do. Herod is a man who seems to be okay with not making any decision, not making any choice in this case. And it's this exact indecision which leads to the profound moral failure in verse 27. Mark is telling us that Herod's indecision, his sitting on the fence, leads to regretful disaster. A dinner is held, Herodias' daughter uh, gives a dance, and the dancing in the first century was always understood to be indecent. This was more of a strip show burlesque than an innocent ballet recital. And the fact that she's a, the daughter of Herodias, perhaps only a teenager, is highlighted by the fact that the girl runs off to mummy for guidance when Herod gives his big offer. Mummy, what should I ask for? Oh, honey... Ask for John the, heads, John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so John dies. And in verse 28, you kind of get this gruesome game of pass the parcel. John's head comes off and then it's brought on a platter. It gets given to the girl and the girl gives it to her mother. Herod's indecision ends with his profound regret and moral disaster. He had his opportunity to respond to the preaching, but he did not take it. Now take a step back for a moment, and now notice why Mark has put the stories of the 12 apostles and their mission trip right next to the story of John the Baptist's death. The apostles went with a message of repentance, and the villagers were given an opportunity to respond. If they didn't, it would end in disaster. God's judgment would fall on them. John the Baptist came with a message of repentance to Herod and his wife. They were given an opportunity to respond. They didn't, and it ended in disaster. And it seems that Mark's point about Herod is that his indecision, his sitting on the fence, ultimately led to that disaster. If he had repented earlier, he would not have had to kill God's prophet, who he feared. Guys, some of you here need to stop sitting on the fence. Maybe you've grown up in this church. Maybe you've been to Sunday school and Salt. Maybe you're a teen or a university student. Maybe you're a worker who's been with us for a few weeks now. Maybe it's been a few months or even years. Maybe you're a parent who visits from overseas every so often or you're a relative of someone who's been at this church for a long time. Whoever you are, you've been listening to sermons here for a while. Maybe you've been to Bible studies, but there's been no transformation Maybe you've been listening gladly, respectfully. Hey, you're not like some people who fall asleep during sermons. Ben's sermons, they're so clear and they're structured. Stephen's sermons, they're so full of great stories. But there's been no conversion. You're sitting on the fence. You're not making any decision one way or the other. And you're in danger. Because like Herod, at some point... You cannot keep sitting on that fence. You have to respond. Get rid of what you know is standing in the way of you and a relationship with Jesus. Simon Manchester, who I've been listening to as I prepare these sermons, he's got this great this illustration of a person who is visiting Bondi Beach, one of the great beaches down in Sydney. And he goes out into the surf, but realizes he can't swim, and he begins drowning. A lifesaver comes out and throws a life ring at him to grab onto, but the drowning man refuses to let go of the ice creams in his hands that he has brought at the kiosk. He refuses to drop them and grab onto the life ring. Imagine that scene. The lifesaver is giving him a chance to be saved, but the ice creams are holding him back. What is the sin that you keep holding onto? What is the idol that you do not want to give up? What is the fear that is holding you back from worshipping Jesus? The wise person drops them and makes a decision to grab onto Jesus for dear life. The weak person procrastinates. They push the the decision off till later. They, They enjoy the moment, but don't get caught up in how serious their position actually is. The foolish person makes a foolish choice of ignoring it altogether. Friends, some of, you sitting, uh, some of you here today are sitting on the fence right now and you cannot sit there forever. You cannot sit there hoping one day when you're ready, you'll make the decision for Jesus because the reality is that sin will always hold you back. Sin will always convince you that you've got more time than you actually have. And it will distance you and distract you from the very real and very weighty decision that you have to make. So repent now while you are given this opportunity. Confess your sin that is holding you back. Ask for forgiveness from God. Because He is ready, willing and able to forgive you. And make Jesus the true King of your life. SALT is the teens ministry of SLE Church. It started in 2008, and I've been part of it since it started. So, this is my 11th year in running the ministry. Now, for the first two years, I hated it. The drive to SALT, the drive to church on Friday nights, there was a pit in my stomach. I just really did not want to come. Why did I hate it? Two words. Joshua (laughs) Sear. The kid that everybody loved to hate. A good kid, but a handful. And he just made salt really hard. And then one year... He's the guy in red. (laughs) And then one year at salt camp with a visiting speaker... Josh gave his life to Christ, and the change was almost immediate. His intellectual questions, they were still there, but now he had a heart that loved and trusted Jesus and wanted to live to please him. He had gone from sitting on the fence to trusting Jesus as all-sufficient in his heart. And from then on, I loved the ministry. My prayer is that he and everyone I minister to will trust that Jesus is all-sufficient, that he's sufficient not only to meet your needs, but also to satisfy your soul. And I mention this because when we turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 30 to 52, our last bit, We read a very familiar passage. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. Matthew and John also follow Mark's account by adding the walking on water miracle directly after the feeding of the 5,000. And it's interesting that in this miracle, Jesus expects his disciples to get it. He's expecting them to understand what this miracle said about his identity. But when you read verse 52, they don't get it. It seems that after all this time, they had a very low view of Jesus. They didn't really see his sufficiency to meet the needs of everyone. It's almost like they are still on the fence, not sure what to do about Jesus. They know that he's powerful. They know that he's good. But it doesn't seem to move them to trust that Jesus can... And will provide. Now let's look at the details. We're going to skim over it very quickly. Uh, first, we begin in verses 30 to 32. The apostles are back from their short term missions trip. It's gone relatively well. They're all tired. They're all hungry. And they haven't even had a chance to sit down and enjoy a meal together. And so in verse 31, Jesus takes them out to a desolate place by themselves. And here we have that word again desolate place. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, Notice that this word keeps coming up again and again. Jesus takes them out into the wilderness. In fact, the word desolate place gets repeated again in verse 32, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And again in verse 35, the repetition of this location is important for our understanding of what's going on here. But file that away for a moment. Come to verse 33. We read that a very large crowd has found them and followed them out into the wilderness. Jesus and the apostles, they can barely get a moment to rest. And all of a sudden, there's this big needy crowd that needs their attention. Jesus is tired and they are hungry. Now, when you think about when you're tired and hungry, what kind of a person are you? When I'm tired and hungry, I'm not a nice person. You can ask my kids because yesterday I was tired. All week for some reason I've been struggling with tiredness and, and then I finally lost it with the kids. Janessa asked me a very simple question, and I snapped at her. Ellie got on my nerves, and I was very curt with her before bed. Jaden heard and saw all of this, and he just kind of kept his head down to stay out of trouble. See, I can tell you that the last thing I want, if I'm tired and hungry, is to come here and preach to a big crowd. And I bet that when you're tired and hungry, the last thing you want to be doing is talking to a crowd of people. But when Jesus is tired and hungry and a big crowd needs his attention, look at how he responds. Verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Well, praise God that Jesus is not like us. He shows compassion to them. He sees them as shepherd without a, as sheep without a shepherd. And so he starts teaching them many things. Jesus, sorry, he is like us, but he, he doesn't act sinfully like us. Praise God for that. The day of teaching goes on, and before everyone knows it, it's now late. 5,000 people are in the desert with no hawk and drive nearby to service their dinner needs. So the disciples suggest to Jesus maybe send them away, dismiss them so they can go get food and go home. And Jesus responds brilliantly. Brilliant suggestion. You give them something to eat. Um, That's a bit expensive, Jesus. 200 denarii, maybe around $40,000 in our day's money? How is that even going to happen? So Jesus then gets the bread and the fish, which we read in the, in the Gospel of John actually belongs to a little boy, so they steal his lunch. <laughs> and Jesus multiplies it to feed the crowd. Everybody is satisfied. You could see that everybody left that meal absolutely stuffed. Jesus here shows that he's half Asian. Because every good Asian knows that you over-cater and have leftovers rather than be embarrassed and under so much food is provided that Jesus had, they collect up twelve baskets of leftovers. Now Mark moves on then quickly to verses forty-five to fifty-two. They head off quickly right away, and then while Jesus heads up a mountain to pray, the disciples are out in a boat. Right, nice little night to be out in a boat. But at about three a.m., the wind has picked up, and then someone notices a figure walking towards them in the distance, and they freak out. And I think we would all freak out. They think it's a ghost, and they wet themselves, even on on a boat. And they're, they're trying to work out if it's better to stay on the boat or jump into the water and swim for the shore. The figure is Jesus, walking on the water to them. At the end of verse 48, we're told that he meant to pass them by. That's an important little detail. Again, file that away. But instead of walking past them, he steps into the boat and he says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Literally... He gets into the boat, and he says, Take heart, I am. Fear not. So do you get it? Do you get what Jesus is doing in these two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the the uh, walking on the water? Because if you're a little confused about what these two stories are doing, then you're in good company, because the disciples don't get it either. So let's go back to the top again. And let's just walk through the highlights of the story. And I want you to notice one major thing. I want you to notice how these two stories have the book of Exodus painted all over them. Right? Mark tells this story. He uses the brushstrokes of the Exodus story. Remember Exodus? Right? That story of Moses and Israel escaping Egypt, the 10 plagues, the Red Sea, the wandering through the wilderness. So let's go back through the top. First, Jesus is with his 12 disciples. And where, and where is their location? The wilderness. Very much like how Moses was with the 12 tribes of Israel in the wilderness. Next, Jesus feeds the crowd miraculously in the wilderness. Very much like how Moses fed the nation of Israel in the desert with manna from heaven. Miraculously. Next, Jesus walks on water as though it was like dry land. In the Exodus, Israel walked through the Red Sea as on dry land. Next, remember how Jesus was meant to pass them by. That echoes how God passed Moses by as he was in the cleft of the rock to display his glory. Next, remember the words that Jesus said on the boat, literally, take heart, I am. That is a clear reference to God speaking with Moses, revealing his own name. I am that I am. All of this, this doesn't even mention how there is so many other brushstrokes of the Old Testament in these miracles. But by linking these events with the Exodus, Mark is saying something truly profound. Remember, the Exodus is the biggest salvation event in Israel's history. It is the defining moment that, for hundreds of years later, after the nation, afterwards, the nation will keep looking back on this event to see how God saved them. But by the time of the prophets, especially in Isaiah and Ezekiel, there was talk of a new Exodus, a new event where God would save his people that would rival that defining event. Mark is saying that Jesus hasn't come to bring many rescues. He hasn't come to just heal one leper, raise one dead daughter, heal one woman with a bleed. Jesus has come to bring the big R rescue. The rescue of rescues. Jesus painted with the brushstrokes of Exodus, is here to bring the great rescue that we all need. Do you get it now? Do you get what Mark is shouting at us? That Jesus is the new Exodus. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the promised shepherd who will save us all. But notice again how the final words of our passage are not words of faith. They are words of unbelief. The disciples did not get who Jesus was. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. How patient was Jesus with them? How patient Jesus must have been with his slow-to-hear and slow-to-learn disciples. And when I look at this story, I feel like I'm one of the disciples in a lot of ways. I'm so slow to hear I am so slow to learn, slow to make connections, slow to see who Jesus really is. As you read on in the story, you'll notice that Jesus, he doesn't rebuke his disciples. He doesn't slam them for their lack of knowledge or their lack of faith. Instead, he's patient with them. He continues on their way. He continues with his teaching and ministry. He keeps on healing people, and he keeps on working with his disciples to help them understand This patience of Jesus for those who don't quite get it yet, that's a patience we all need. Think of ourselves, think of how long it took for us to properly understand the gospel. And think of how patient God was with us as we kept hearing and slowly grew in faith. This divine being waits patiently and deals with people who are so slow to learn, who are so slow to believe, so patiently we need to echo that we need to be praying more for our sunday school teachers with the kids downstairs there's a whole stack of kids downstairs who have no concept of how privileged they are to be in a church that really wants to teach them the bible not to make them good boys and good girls but so that they will know jesus and trust him So pray for the teachers to be patient with the kids as they teach each week in in and week out. Pray for the SALT teens and their parents. Yes, I am talking about you guys. In the past year, I've received a a few questions about why the teens aren't encouraged to be baptized. And I've chatted with a number of parents and I've understood the anxiety. Baptism is a wonderful public Outward sign that you are committed to following Jesus. But you know what? After 11 years of salt ministry, I've seen what sitting on the fence looks like. And a lot of you guys are sitting on the fence. It's time to make a decision. And for the rest of us, please keep praying for their parents to be patient. And keep praying for the friends and the family that we're evangelizing and reaching out to. Don't lose hope that God will take the seeds that you're planting and bring growth. Pray that the seed would fall in fertile soil. Pray that God would help it spring to life. Pray that we would be patient as we persevere in sharing the gospel. And pray that they would truly see Jesus for who he is. Our great new Exodus. The great new Moses the great salvation that he brings. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a jam-packed passage where we need to consider the message that we speak, that the message of repentance that needs to go out. Some of us here need to be thinking about what is it, what is it that is preventing us from repenting? It's a passage that reminds us and warns us that we cannot sit on the fence forever. So help us, Father, to see what might be holding us back from following and worshipping Jesus. And it's a passage that clearly displays the glory and the majesty and the beauty and the divinity of your Son, Jesus, and yet reminds us that even those who are closest with him did not see that, they did not get it help us to be as patient with those who don't get your son as Jesus was patient with those who did not understand him. We pray, Father, you help us to do these things so we trust you more, that we will turn and trust you, and that we will live out this joyfully. In Jesus' name, amen.